in a small cemetery of a churchyard in Oldney, England, which, by the way, is near Cambridge, England. There stands a granite tombstone with this following inscription written on it. By the way, this, this testimony was written by John Newton himself prior to his death. Here's what he says. He says, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Might be hard for you to read, but that's what is written on that tombstone. Some of you probably know John Newton as the author of that amazing hymn, wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace. But did you know that during uh, John Newton's early years, he was actually uh, quite rebellious, very rebellious, uh, uh, described as uh, filled with debauchery, just one long, continuous round of rebellion is how he was described, despite the fact that his mother was a godly woman. Uh, when he was old enough to uh, leave the house, in fact, he left the house quite early. His father ended up dying and ended up joining uh, a ship, worked on a ship, but eventually made his way to Africa, and he was involved in the collecting of slaves for the uh, sale uh, of the slaves, the, the Africans there, to the uh, visiting traders that came to Africa, and it would take them off to the plantations. But we praise God, eventually uh, Newton became um, a Christian, but before that he ended up, actually became a, a captain of his own slave ship. The capturing and selling and the transporting of the black slaves was something that was very cruel, and, and it was a very vicious way of life. Many ended up dying in the bowels of the ships. But it was on March the 10th in 1748 that God used a, a massive storm as uh, Newton uh, was on his way from Africa to England. And, and God used that storm to get Newton's attention. It drove him to the Word of God. It drove him to Christ. And eventually ended up becoming a Christian by putting his faith in Jesus Christ. As a result of reading the Bible, he ended up becoming a strong crusader against slavery. Eventually, at the age of 39, John was ordained to the gospel ministry and began his first pastorate at the little village of Olney, which I said is near Cambridge, England. And he ended up staying there for 15 years. Some of you may have heard of Olney Hymns. Uh, Olney Hymns was obviously written <clears throat> while he was in Olney and God used uh, John Newton to write most of those, hundreds, several hundred hymns. After concluding his ministry at Olney, Newton spent the remaining 20 years of, 28 years of his life as a pastor of the Woolnoth Church in London. By this time, Newton had uh, established some very strong relationships with uh, some of the, uh, the MPs, ministers of Parliament. Some of you may have heard of William Wilberforce. Uh, he became friends with William Wilberforce and had a great influence on him, as well as some other leaders who were engaged in the crusade against uh, uh, the, the uh, or I should say, for the abolition of the slave trade. 
It's interesting to, to note, by the way, that the year of Newton's death, which was 1807, that was the same year that the British Parliament finally abolished slavery throughout all of its domain. Until the time of his death, though, at the age of 82, John Newton never ceased to marvel at God's grace and, and mercy and how it had had such a dramatic uh, effect and, and change in his life. God's grace, uh, some have said, was his, the, his, the dominant theme of his preaching and his writing. You certainly can see it in that hymn, Amazing Grace. But what is grace? What is grace? We heard earlier that grace is unmerited favor from God. It's what we don't deserve. It's uh, also God's divine enabling, where God enables us to to do His His work, to do what He wants us to do. Christians receive grace when they're born again. When you become a believer, that is God's grace in your life. He converts you through His grace. So this saving grace is not something that you can earn or work for. It's a free gift given by a gracious God. Some have asked, well, what's so amazing about grace? Why would someone like Newton write a song called Amazing Grace? In fact, there's even a book uh, with the title, What's So Amazing About Grace? Well, it's been said that Christianity is supremely a religion of grace, and that's certainly true, but even... So, grace is not well understood today. In fact, I remember several years ago writing an article in one of our local newspapers. Somebody didn't understand what grace was. It ended up becoming quite a heated argument, actually, in all these letters going back and forth between the editor of the newspaper. And uh, there were some rather nasty things said just because there were people talking about grace. We use the word a lot, but do we really understand what it means? And so in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey points out that part of our problem is in the nature of grace itself. We struggle with the nature of grace. And and here's what Philip Yancey says. I quote him on the screen here. Grace is scandalous. It's hard to accept, hard to believe, and hard to receive. Grace shocks us in what it offers. It is truly not of this world. It frightens us with what it does for sinners. End quote. Now, you may not feel that way, but chances are sometime in your life you have felt that way. And, and probably if you haven't felt that way, there will be a time in your life you will feel this way. But grace teaches us that God does for others what we would never do for them. So it's a good thing I'm not God and you're not God. Grace is a gift. And and by the way, it costs the giver everything. And the one who receives costs them nothing. It's free. It's given to those who don't deserve it, barely recognize it, and hardly appreciate it. And the thing is, you don't have to do anything because Jesus did all the work. And that's why God alone gets the glory in your salvation. Because you don't deserve it. And you can't do anything other than just receive it by faith in Jesus Christ alone. So in the end, grace means that no one is too bad to be saved. 
There is no such thing as someone out there in this world who is such a big or bad sinner where grace is not sufficient. God specializes in saving really bad people. And that's one of the the beauties we see in Matthew is Jesus shows His grace to the outcast of society, to the prostitutes and the sinners and the tax collectors and and, and all these people who are just the outcast of society. So my friend, let me ask you this. Do you have some things in your background that you would just be ashamed to talk about in public? I dare say we all have at least, you know, some skeleton in the closet, so to speak. I think there's there's something every one of us would be ashamed to talk about in public. Well, the good news is we don't need to fear. We need to fear God, but we don't need to fear that because God knows all about those skeletons in the closet anyway. And it's His grace that is greater than our sin. Grace also means that <clears throat> there, there, there might be some people who are just too good to be saved. Now, I purposely worded it that way to shock some of you. You say, what, too good to be saved? Well, what I mean by that is there, there are some people that have such a high opinion of themselves they, they don't actually think they need God's grace. And those are the ones that Jesus had very harsh words for in Scripture. You see, God's grace can't help you until you recognize you need help. You have to become desperate enough to receive God's grace. And so, today we're actually going to look at Jesus' parable here about this landowner who goes out and hires these vineyard workers, which in the process, Jesus is teaching us about his grace. Jesus told the parable of this, this landowner, and in case you've forgotten, in chapter 19, Jesus, as he tells this parable, he's actually responding to Peter's query, which is on behalf of all the apostles, about what was in store for them. Hey, what's in store for us? Hey, we've left all, Peter says. So what about us? What are we going to get? So he's, And this was in response to Jesus' teaching about the impossibility of entering the kingdom by human means or effort. Remember in chapter 19, Jesus told the story of this rich young man. He comes and asks, Hey, uh, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus proceeds to say, you don't do anything. There's nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. The only thing we can do is put our faith in Jesus Christ alone. And in this parable, this story, the apostles represented these workers who who started at 6 o'clock in the morning and worked till 6 p.m. They They began early in the morning. They stayed there throughout the heat of the day until the job was done at 6 p.m., which, by the way, 12-hour day was pretty much normal, especially during harvest season when the grapes needed to be harvested. If there was good weather, they had to get at it and get the job done. So Jesus is using this story here, this parable, to explain the truth that he's been talking about in chapter 19. So let's look at chapter 20, Matthew chapter 20. Let's read this together, starting in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. 
after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. Verse 4. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Now it's interesting, we, we kind of have like bookends going on here. If you notice verse 16, talks about the last will be first, and the first last. But I remind you, chapter divisions are not inspired. It's interesting that chapter 19 ends with a very similar comment from Jesus. Look at the very last verse in chapter 19. Jesus says, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So when you see bookends like that, that gives you a clue that everything in between it has something to do with that. All right? Jesus is trying to explain this truth. So, let's, let's look at this parable, this, this analogy that Jesus is giving here. In this parable, notice, what is this all about? What is it all about? Well, Jesus tells us kind of the, the, the main idea here in verse 1. Notice Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven to a landowner who's going out and hiring workers for his vineyard. He says that the kingdom of heaven is like this story that he tells here. So what's the point? Well, one commentator put it this way. I'll put this quote on the screen here for you. He says, quote, To understand the parable's spiritual meaning, it is necessary to understand who and what are represented in it. Jesus explicitly said the parable is about the kingdom of heaven in verse 1. The vineyard is therefore the kingdom itself. The landowner is God the Father, and the foreman is the Son, Jesus Christ. The laborers are believers, and the denarius is eternal life, which all received equally for trusting in Christ. 
The workday is the believer's lifetime of service to his Lord, and the evening is eternity. End quote. Well, as we see in the story, this was a typical scene in Bible times. Uh, so just as we have employment agencies today where you can you can go up and you can you can sign up at an employment agency and when they have work they'll 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 send you an email or a text or give you a phone call and say hey we got a job for you this is kind of the 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 biblical times employment agency uh, these workers were unskilled at a trade uh, they're near somewhere near the bottom of the social economic ladder or scale and so what they would do is they would go into the town or the city and and if a landowner needed some extra workers especially around harvest time he would go there and get those extra workers to bring in the harvest and that's kind of the idea that jesus is telling us here these these men uh lived at a level that was just basically above being a beggar they were able to work, they just didn't have a regular job. And so they worked from job to job, whatever job they could get from day to day, they would do it. Uh, a lot of times these jobs might only last a day. And so because they had no guarantee of work beyond what they might be doing at the time, they, they would go and they would gather in the marketplace where people would come and they would They'd gather and, and there'd be people with their various stalls selling whatever their wares, their vegetables or fruit or whatever it might be. And they would go there and they would go there hoping to be hired by somebody who, who could hire them. Work in a vineyard was not easy work. Uh, I've given you a, a photo here of a, uh, of a vineyard somewhere in Israel. At harvest time, the grapes had to be picked. During harvest time, it was often very hot. And it's interesting that Jesus, in verse 12, talks about the scorching heat. So, if you've never been to Israel, uh, you should know that it, it often will get to 35 degrees Celsius and sometimes even hotter. And if you're working in a vineyard, you're not going to have much airflow going on, so... So it would be stifling hot. Try putting your head inside an oven, and that's kind of the idea of you might get. So it was very, very hot. It wasn't easy work, hard work, long hours, probably 12-hour days. So the landowner, he goes into the village, and he makes an agreement with these workers. And if you notice in verse 2, the, the workers' wages were set at one denarius per day. One denarius per day. Now, if you're not familiar with that terminology, that was a day's wage for a Roman soldier. So a Roman soldier, was he wasn't at the bottom of the social economic scale. Uh, he was a little bit higher than that. So, so this was actually a generous offer by this landowner. And that's why, they, of course, they're agreeing to that rate, and, and they're ready to work with great eagerness. They thought, hey, that's a, that's, that's a good deal. That's, that's actually above minimum wage, so to speak. So imagine some you know, person who's expecting minimum wage, and somebody comes along, instead of getting $15 an hour, somebody says, hey, I'll give you $20 an hour. Well, that's, that's kind of the, the equivalent here. And 
So anybody who's used to working for minimum wage would say, sure, yeah, I'll work for you. And that's what they're doing here. Well, what was the work schedule like? Well, this is kind of interesting. If you, if you look all the way from verse 1 to 7, you need to understand something about a Jewish work day. Uh, it would have been probably unheard of back in those days for somebody to work a 9-to-5 job. And so we're using Jewish terminology here. So you need to understand that a Jewish workday typically began at 6 a.m. And that was called the first hour. The third hour began, began three hours later at 9 a.m. The sixth hour was noon. And the ninth hour began at 3 p.m. And so in, in this passage here, Jesus actually mentions the 11th hour. So if you carry that on, that would be 5 p.m. So obviously then the 12th hour would be 6 p.m. So it's interesting, this landowner, he goes out early in the morning at at the first hour at 6 p.m., and he gets some workers to work this 12-hour shift there in verse 1. Apparently he didn't have enough. So he goes back out at 9 a.m., and he gets this next group of people work from 9 till 6. and You'll see that in verse 3. But then he goes out again at noon, and and that group of people, they work from noon to 6. You'll see that in verse 5. And then Jesus mentions this next group. The the landowner goes back in, and he gets some more people at 3 p.m., and they work for three hours. You'll see that also in verse 5. But the one that is the most shocking, the one that causes an argument the, the most would probably be this group of people who only worked one hour. Or, or probably even less than an hour. Uh, so at most they would have worked from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. You'll see that mentioned. Jesus talks about that in verse 6 and 7, where he says in verse 6, about the 11th hour he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, hey, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said, hey, nobody's hired us. We're hoping to get hired. They want to work. They're able to work. So it's probably at this point that the parable is taking this dramatic turn. By the 11th hour, which is 5 p.m., work on most plantations is, is uh, winding down. They're, you know, typically at work, a lot of times the last hour of the day, if, you're, if you've never worked a 12-hour shift, what often happens is that last hour is, is a winding down time. Uh, I used to have a job at a distribution center, a massive distribution center, and the last hour of the day was was uh, pretty much cleanup time. <laughs> right? It was winding down, getting ready for the, the next 12-hour shift that was coming in. So that's probably the, what was going on here. They would have, whatever needed to be done in the, the plantation or the vineyard would have been done. And so laborers who were probably back in town waiting for work, probably at this time had lost hope of getting any work for that day, which meant probably they weren't going to eat that day. Well, this is an amazing story if you understand the, the times and what Jesus is talking about here. And it ends up creating this argument starting in verse 8. We see in verse 8 that, that in the evening the owner instructs his foreman here to pay their wages. It was unusual, by the way, to start with the last group. But that's what the, the owner does. He says, hey, begin with the last one hired. These guys who, were, who started work at 5 p.m., you give them their wages first. And then you go on to the, the guys who started at 6 a.m. Well, that 
created an uh, inter- interesting argument. If you look at the pay, by the way, verse 9 and 10, what was their pay? <clears throat> verse 9 says, When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Whoa! And verse 10 says, Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. Wait a minute. <laughs> They're probably thinking, right, okay, so the guys who only worked one hour get a day's wage. Well, they're probably thinking, whoa, we're going to get 12 times more. right? Isn't that kind of the natural thing to think? We worked 11 hours more than those guys, so we're going to get a lot more pay than those guys. That's what they're thinking. Therein lies the argument. And so they protested. Hey, these guys are getting a day's wage for one hour work. What about us? Well... So were the workers who began at 6 a.m., they began protesting. In verse 11. Verse 11 says, And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Oh, isn't that just like us? By the way, remember, they agreed. They agreed to this payment. This was a generous payment. This was above minimum wage, so to speak, for these guys who really had no skills. And so the owner reminds them in verses 13 through 15 of a couple important things. Notice verse 13, what he reminds you. Hey, I'm giving you what I promised, he says in verse 13. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? It's like, it's like you standing at, you know, at the employment agency saying, sure, hey, I'll go do this job for $20 an hour. And then you go and do the job, and you grumble and complain for getting what you already agreed to. Well, that's what's going on here. And then in verses 14 and 15, the, the owner of this vineyard says that he can pay anyone anything he wants to. He has the right to do this. He's the owner. And that's why he says in verse 14, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? He's being generous. He's giving above what was was expected at that time. So what is the application here? Well, it should be pretty obvious. Remember the book ends, chapter 19, verse 30. It says, many who are first will be last and last first. And then Jesus ends this paragraph here in verse 16 by saying that the last will be first and the first last. So the application is drawn from that. Well, what does that mean? The last will be first and the first last. Remember, Jesus is responding to Peter's question in chapter 19, or his statement, chapter 19, verse 29, where Peter says, everyone who is... Uh, sorry, no, let's back up. Uh, verse 27, Peter said, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What are we going to get? We've left everything. You know, We're, we're, the, we're the 6 a.m. workers who, who've stuck it out the whole day for 12 hours. What are we going to get? Well, those who make the world's values primary and, and, and place them above God, Jesus is saying they're going to be the last. 
But those who are putting Christ first and, and find themselves last in this world, Jesus is saying, you're going to be richly blessed in God's kingdom. I think the central truth is that eternal life is equal for all believers. Eternal life is equal for all believers. Remember, Jesus is responding to this, this rich young man who came. He wants eternal life, wondering what he can do. And the man went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. He was covetous. And the disciples are responding, hey, can anyone be saved? And they're wondering, well, hey, what are we going to get? Hey, we've left everything for you, Jesus. What are we going to get? And that's why Jesus tells the parable of the laborers in the vineyard here. So eternal life is equal for all believers. That means if you're a tax collector, a believing tax collector like Matthew, or, or a prostitute, or or criminal, or a social outcast, you're going to have the same heavenly residence as, as guys like the Apostle Paul, or a Martin Luther, or a John Wesley, or a Charles Spurgeon, or whoever you can think of. The reality is, there's no servants' headquarters. There's no servants' uh, quarters in heaven. There is, there is no neighborhood in, in heaven for the lower class. The Bible says in heaven that that uh, Jesus Christ is preparing a room in His Father's house for all believers. It's going to be the same. So if you're a believer, you get a room in the Father's house. Let's look at some spiritual principles that flow from this parable. Let's just think about this for a moment. Number one, my, uh, the first principle that we can draw from this text is that God sovereignly initiates and accomplishes salvation. If the owner of the vineyard is God, the landowner is God the Father, who's the one initiating this? Who's the one accomplishing the work here for these workers? Well, obviously He is. The landowner is the one who's going out and looking for the workers. He's the one hiring them and asking them to work in His vineyard. God's the one who does the seeking in salvation. He's the one who saves. It's His initiative. It's His power that does the work. We have no demands on His special favor or, or His privileges. We can't demand things. The Bible says in John 6 that every person who believes has first been sought out by the Father and, and the Father gives His Son to, the, to these people. Read John 6 verse 39. So whether God sought us early in our lives or whether we're saved later on in life, in our 30s or 40s, 50s, 60s, 80s, whatever it might be, all of the glory goes to God alone. Because God is the one who does the seeking, the accomplishing of salvation. The second principle is that God alone establishes the terms of salvation. God does this. Because the laborers in the vineyard came at different times, guess what? They worked different hours. Some worked 12 hours, some worked less. And so we can assume uh, they worked with many different degrees of productivity as well. But did they receive different pay? No. They received the same pay. 
Now, that doesn't mean that there's different, uh, that everybody gets the same rewards in heaven. That's not what this is talking about, okay? <laughs> uh, in fact, I, I was even reading a commentary that said that. Now, the Bible is, is clear that God rewards believers in heaven at the judgment seat based on what you do in your body. If, if, you, if you live a wasted life, the Bible says your works will be burned up. It'll just, just going to be a bunch of ash. But if your works count for Christ and you serve Him and the cause of Christ, then that'll be like gold and, and silver and precious stones. So we see, second of all here, that God alone establishes the terms of salvation. But number three, the third principle is that God continues to call men into His kingdom. Notice, God didn't just, if the landowner represents God, notice he didn't just go at 6 a.m., right? He went several times into town to get more workers, right? He continued to call these men into his kingdom. He went back several times into the marketplace, and that's the way God is. God's gracious. He doesn't give up. He keeps pursuing, calling men and women to himself. And he's going to continue to call until the last hour of this age. Even in, in the book of Revelation, even in the tribulation, we see thousands and thousands of people coming to Christ. A fourth principle is that God redeems everyone who is willing. He redeems everyone who's willing. In fact, Jesus says in John 6, verse 37, The one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. I will certainly not cast out the one who comes to me, he says. If you look at this parable here, all the laborers who went to the vineyard recognized they were needy. They were needed. They needed work so they could provide food for themselves and, and maybe even their families. They had no, no hope of work except they needed a landowner to provide work for them. What did they do? They received it gladly. And that's the way it is in salvation. We need a landowner. We need God to come to us. And all we can do is receive it willingly and gladly. Number five, the fifth principle is that God is compassionate to those who have no resources and acknowledge their hopelessness. Have you done that, my friend? Have you recognized that God is compassionate? As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, you've got to come empty-handed. You must be poor in spirit, recognizing you have absolutely nothing to offer Him except your sin. Those are the ones who come to faith in Christ. This individual here reaches out to those in need who know that they are in need. And so when the men in the last group told the landowner, they're, they're just, hey, we don't have work, we're, we're just standing here idle because nobody's hired us, what does He do? He hired them. And when anyone comes to God knowing that he has, hey, there, there, there's no better deal on the table. There is no other deal on the table. There's no other prospect for life except for Jesus Christ. Well, the Lord will always lovingly and mercifully accept that person as his own. The sixth principle is that all who come into the vineyard worked. You don't work for salvation. Okay, that's not the point. As Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, Salvation is not by works, it's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You can't work for salvation, but uh, the reality is, 
even, even coming at the last hour, they did something, right? That reminds me of that penitent thief on the cross hanging next to Jesus Christ. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. That guy did, he couldn't do anything. But you know what? Even his testimony is a wonderful testimony of God's grace. And God has used that penitent thief on the cross in our lives and in other people's lives throughout the centuries. The history of the church is is filled with stories of deathbed conversions. And they've been used by God to lead others to himself. The seventh principle is that God has the divine authority and the ability to keep his promises. Did you notice at every hour of the day that the landowner went to the market and he hires these these workers? Was he able to pay them a day's wage? Of course he was, and he did. He paid them. Even though they didn't deserve that much money, he pays them. There's no shortage of funds to pay these people the full amount. And that's the way it is with God. That's the way it is with Christ. Christ sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to pay for the sins of the whole world, all the way from Adam to whoever the last people on earth will be. And eighth principle is that God always gives more than is deserved. That's grace. He gives more than is deserved. I mean, the, the people who started working at 6 a.m., they're envious of those who only worked one hour starting at 5 p.m. They were selfish. They thought they deserved more, those who worked the 12 hours. But the reality is they got what was agreed upon. The landowner was no more obligated to hire the first workers than the others. The reality is none of them deserved work. The landowner was gracious in giving them work and paying them a day's wage. He would have been justified to just leave them there and not hire them at all. But all of them were paid more than they were worth. Well, think about that in regards to our lives. If you're a believer, in an infinitely greater way, no believer is qualified, if you will, to receive God's favor, to receive God's grace, much less salvation. We don't deserve eternal life. We don't deserve to live forever with God. And so even the best person by human standards is is blessed immeasurably beyond what we could possibly deserve. The ninth principle is that humility and a genuine sense of unworthiness is the only right attitude in which a person may come to the Lord. Again, if you follow Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, it starts with coming empty-handed, poor in spirit, but then you have to mourn over your sin. You have to repent of your sin. You must come with genuine humility, recognizing, I am unworthy of Christ. The early workers, they lost some of their humility. They were grumbling, complaining, even though they got what they did, uh, more than they deserved. That's not the right attitude to have. I can't help but wonder sometimes if we, if we have that same kind of an attitude of somebody who has a deathbed conversion. Maybe we're like the disciples and say, hey, You might be like me, saved at a young age. God was gracious to me in saving me at a young age. What a blessing that is. But some people don't get saved till way later in life. And 
Some of us who are saved young in life can grumble and complain like these people and say, hey, wait a minute. You mean I'm going to live next to that guy in heaven? Who's, he just saved on his deathbed? Yes, you will. The tenth and final principle is that God's grace is sovereign. God's grace is sovereign. He reigns supreme over his all of his creation. So from beginning to the end, when you look at this parable, you just see God's divine, boundless grace everywhere. The men's work had absolutely no relationship to what they were paid. They got more than what they deserved. And that's the way it is with us. That's the way it is with us. The Bible says that even our righteousness is like filthy rags. God's not impressed. And so even less do men's works of supposed righteousness have any relationship to what we actually receive So just as sin is the great equalizer, guess what? (laughs) God's grace is the the great equalizer as well. It, It just removes sin. It makes every believer equally acceptable to Him, and that only happens in Christ. So my friend, let me ask you this question. How do you find God's grace? Some of you might be wondering that. How do I find God's grace? Me personally, I want God's grace. Well, it's simple. You just ask for it. That's, that's all you have to do. You ask for it. And so the, the, the good news is the more you feel your need for God's grace, the better candidate you are for actually receiving God's grace. So what do you have to do? You come empty-handed. You, you hold out empty hands to God, and you ask God to fill your empty hands with Him, with His Son. You ask for His grace. You're not going to be turned away when you do. God says those who come to Him, He's not going to cast them out. And it's never too late. You are not such a great sinner that a great Savior cannot save you. Yes, you are a great sinner. I don't, know, I don't remember who said that, but Jesus Christ is a greater Savior than you are a sinner. And so this is the miracle, the, the wonder, the scandal. Grace is scandalous. It's shocking. It's, it's, as some have said, it is out of this world because nobody in this world could have possibly thought this up. God did. And so here's the good news for sinners. Grace is free. It's free. And so what do we have to do? If you, 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 you shout it. You sing it. We did that today. You tell other people about God's grace. You share it. You don't hold it in. And you believe it. So if you, if you want to come to Christ, then you believe it. If you want God's grace, you believe it. And, and, and guess what happens when you believe it? The Bible says you are saved. God bestows His grace upon sinners who don't deserve it. It's unmerited favor. It's, some have called it Christ riches at Christ's expense. God en- enables you to have this faith so you can put that faith in in Christ? That's good news. That is the good news. That is the gospel. Will you believe it? Will you act upon it?